This is Crossroads, a Get Religion podcast. This is a story that the New York Times ought to be reporting. It's about the abortion abolitionist movement. The headline reads, Inside the extreme effort to punish women for abortion, abortion abolitionists are the outer edge of the anti-abortion movement. That's a good way to begin because it is a fringe movement within the pro-life movement. Why did the story bury the real headline in the eighth paragraph? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. We were talking about the abortion abolitionist movement not very long ago in connection with the Southern Baptist Convention meeting this summer, and I think you made a prediction didn't take very long for it to come true. What's the real news hook on the New York Times story? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that this story is actually pretty solid. I think it has some holes in it. And I think the person they focused on the most, to me, is a subplot in what is actually a very important story. And we'll get to that in a second. But I predicted that the abolitionist story would catch the attention of the mainstream press because it represents a debate and a division inside the anti-abortion or pro-life movement. And I stressed that it was a perfectly valid story. The issue would be the degree to which the mainstream press realized what a small movement it is and an outlier to the mainstream movement. And I'd have to say this New York Times piece gets that basic idea down. I'm not sure they back it up to the degree that they need to, but they they mention it and it's one of the framing devices of this story. I think it would help if listeners back up for a second and see how this kind of has some history to it. Long ago in pre-internet, And back when I was working full-time in a newsroom, I had an editor who became very impressed with anti-abortion clinic violence. And part of that was because we had there in Denver, up in Boulder, we had a very famous clinic, which was one of the nation's leading centers for third trimester abortion. And it didn't take a PhD in rocket science to know that eventually we were going to have some wild protests and other things happen up at that clinic. And sure enough, eventually Operation Rescue came and there were major demonstrations and everything else, but no violence to speak of as a part of that. Well, I told him, here's what I wanted to do. Now, this is pre-internet, so it was harder. I started trying to find out if I could find an example of anti-abortion clinic violence, especially either arson or a shooting attempt, serious intent to inflict damage, harm, and even death. And of course we had 
abortion is killed in a couple of cases. What I tried to figure out was if any of that had ever been committed by someone who was connected to a mainstream pro-life group. And what I found out over and over was that the person committing the violence had actually been kicked out of a pro-life mainstream organization, and often because they refused to accept nonviolence as the norm. And of course, I'm separating here you know, First Amendment forms of protest, such as sidewalk prayers, sidewalk counseling, getting a large group of people and singing hymns really loud, even all the way down to nonviolent protests where people chain themselves to gates or doors around an abortion clinic. I'm not counting any of that as violence. In violence, I'm putting vandalism, arson, shooting, and clear attempts to kill an abortionist. Well, I presented a number of these case studies to my editor, and it was not the result, I must say, it was not the result that he wanted to hear because it proved to some degree that, how to put this, the vast majority of pro-life groups were policing themselves and throwing people out who threatened violence. And thus, when they got thrown out, they were often frustrated with the movement, the mainstream movement, and thus turned to violence. So what I'm suggesting here is it's very important to figure out how large a following a particular person has when you base a story on them. And in this case, we're dealing with a man who is what I would consider an internet superstar, or not a superstar, let's just call him a star. He has something like 300,000 followers on the internet, and it's apparent that there are some people listening to him. But if you read the story carefully, we never find out if he's a part of any religious denomination, and we never find out if his church has any connections to structures of evangelical power and influence. Now, if we have frequent listeners, that argument that I'm making will sound familiar, because we saw that in the aftermath of January the 6th, where the people who committed the violence against the U.S. Capitol and violated security laws and went inside the security zones. I've been following the trials quite closely, in part because we had, I believe it was a Washington Post story, who said that January 6, the people who planned it and committed these acts were tied to the structures of evangelical power and thus represented a trend in mainstream evangelicalism. And so far, I haven't seen any of the people who planned the events or who violated the safety zone, went inside and broke the law. I haven't seen any evidence so far that these people were actually a part of major evangelical schools, parachurch groups, networks, institutions, or denominations. You found out that, for the most part, they were connected to each other by social media and that they were a part of independent churches. 
Now, the man, Jeff Durbin, and it's interesting they don't call him the Reverend Jeff Durbin in the story. The implication here is if he's a pastor, he was ordained by somebody. I would love to know who ordained him. It also mentions that after a wild period of his life that he went into the ministry, yet we never find out where he went to seminary, if he went to a particular denominational school. Does he have any background that connects him to evangelicalism at all? And the whole story is framed as if this man is the norm, and he's presented as a part of a fringe movement. And like I said, I think that's accurate, and I'm glad they framed it that way. But what percentage of this story would you say he received in terms of attention? Oh, golly, he easily occupied 50% of it. I'd say it's more like 75%. And right in the middle of this story, they had a potential for what I would consider a national story in terms of its importance. And that's when they stress that there is a kind of abolitionist movement inside the Southern Baptist Convention, and that one of the candidates for the presidency of the SBC recently was a leader in it, and this is someone who believes that women should be prosecuted for getting abortions. Most throughout the whole decades I've covered the pro-life movement, as a rule, what you've heard is people saying that the vast majority of women, to one degree or another, believe they are coerced into abortion. There was a study in the late 80s that claimed 80 to 85 percent of women said they did not choose to have an abortion. That they were usually forced into it by a lover, by an, a business, sometimes by their own parents. And they said that if, if the choice had been theirs, they would have considered not having an abortion. My dear friend, Frederica Matthews Green, her very first book long ago focused on talking to women who had had abortion and asking them what could the church or some other organization have done to have helped them avoid abortion. And they overwhelmingly say what they needed was a supportive man. They needed a man in their life who supported them in not seeking abortion. But what you hear over and over is that these women didn't want abortion. And this is the mainstream in the pro-life movement is you don't punish the women. You punish the people who perform the abortion. And Pope Francis, for example, uh, has talked about the people who commit abortion as murderers. And that, in effect, when you go to an abortionist, you're hiring a mafia hitman to kill the child, which is pretty strong language coming from someone identified with kind of the left half of Catholicism in this day and age. But those are vivid images. The Southern Baptist angle of the story gets three paragraphs, unless I miss something else. And it ends by having this, this leader, Tom Askell, says, is quoted as saying, all mothers who abort their children are culpable at some level though not necessarily equally capable for homicide. Now, that's different than the person who is the focus of this story. And I've run into abolitionists on Twitter who attack me 
for defending the teachings of my own church, Eastern Orthodoxy, which would certainly oppose abortion. But at the same time, people associated with my church are primarily anxious in preventing abortions. They're in favor of as strict a laws as they can pass, but in some states, if the best you can do is a ban on abortion after first trimester or after 12 weeks or after visible detectable heartbeat, people in my tradition and most Catholics that I know and most mainstream evangelicals I know, they're willing to take the deal that they can get in blue or purple states because they're going to save as many lives as they can. It's a painful compromise. It's not a compromise that they welcome, but it's a compromise that they're willing to take if it's the best they can do with a political coalition that will work with their state legislature. And I have argued for several weeks now that this is the big story after the fall of Roe v. Wade, which is what will happen in state legislatures and what kind of compromise bills can be negotiated. There are people in the abolitionist movement who think it's wrong for pro-lifers to cooperate on any compromise legislation. If they can't get a total ban, including banning cases, very rare cases of rape and incest, and even bills that call for the prosecution of the woman, they say that it's an improper compromise for pro-lifers to go for those compromise pieces of legislation and argue that they're saving as many unborn lives as they can. So I really wanted more. When I read that quote from someone in the Southern Baptist Convention, the nation's largest non-Catholic organization, religious organization. So here we have someone who placed second in the SBC election, and he, he clearly considers himself an abolitionist, but his view is different than the man who is at the heart of this story. And so I, I wanted more follow-up. I wanted to know more about what he believed. I wanted to know what institutions inside the Southern Baptist Convention he's linked to, if any. What are the networks that support him? Are there any seminaries that include faculty members that would support this point of view? I wanted to know a lot more, but the story, Zoom, goes right back to this individual, independent, apparently, independent church pastor who has made noise on YouTube. And the story didn't deliver more of what I wanted to know, frankly, because I'm taking the abolitionist movement very seriously and saying we need to know what institutions it has managed to shape and which institutions in evangelicalism it's attempting to shape. Anything else missing from the New York Times story? I was kind of hoping that maybe someone would at least try to roughly determine how big the movement is beyond two individuals that they cited. Well, once again, I don't know if we can count them. I, you know, I, Internet traffic at one guy's YouTube channel is not going to impress me. I was stressing whether or not they have voices who are in institutions that have any power in evangelicalism. That, to me, was the angle that they could have pursued. This leads me to another news hook that's in the story that I think addresses your point. 
they mention in there at one point that Donald Trump kind of, I think the hip term these days is dog whistle, that he kind of called out by saying women should be prosecuted in some way. Now, here's why I think that's important. If Trump put that into a speech, then that means that there was somebody near Donald Trump who was talking about that concept. And we know that the clergy advisors for Donald Trump, I mean, Julia Dean has written about this over and over at Get Religion and elsewhere, that his clergy circle, the people who had his ears, included many people who were quite powerful in independent, there's that word again, independent Pentecostal and charismatic congregations. And if you're going to mention Trump and that he kind of waved a flag at these people at least once, I once again wanted to know, okay, who got his ear? Who managed to get close enough to the President of the United States that an idea like this would kind of be on his radar at all that he needed to take this stand. So there's another important hook that got mentioned in the story and then it's gone. And, and I say, I want more information there because let me stress again, I think this is an important story. And I know that these people are out there I want more information on who they are and who they're influencing. That's my primary desire out of the story. And the Times kind of whetted my appetite for that and then didn't go there, didn't actually make their own case. Now, there's another thing that I think they needed, a thing or two that they needed in this story. I thought, take this on as politics for a second. What would a bill that did what these people want. What would that bill actually sound like? Has anyone written such a bill? And could the Times have quoted it? And at that point, you could talk to church state experts. And in this case, talk to them on the left and the right. I suspect you'd get the same answers, just to different levels of heat. What chance would this kind of bill have getting through a state legislature? And what chance, based on the testimony in the Dobbs case at the Supreme Court, what chance would such a bill have if it ended up being challenged and taken to the Supreme Court? In other words, what are the political realities of this position? And is there any state in the union where you could pass what this fringe group wants. Because I think we need to know whether it has any opportunity for influence at the legal level. And there are church-state groups out there that everybody knows the names of, Alliance for Defense of Freedom, the Beckett Group, and others on the kind of on the conservative side of the culture. And then, of course, you have the you know, the Jewish legal associations, and you have ACLU, you have all kinds of groups, and Americans United for Separation of Church and State are always good for a quote. It would have been interesting 
maybe to have a sidebar, or maybe that's the next angle for this story. What would these people have thought of such a bill? In particular, I just last week wrote a column about the Democrats for life, and there are other groups on kind of the left side of the political spectrum who are pro-life, from atheists and agnostics for life and gays and lesbians for life. There's a lot of group. Feminist for life would leap to mind. I guarantee you feminist for life, a group that Frederica Matthews Green used to be the national spokesperson for. I guarantee you they're not going to want a bill prosecuting women for murder linked to abortion. It would have been interesting to see how all of those groups compared and then ask someone like Democrats for Life, this is the people you're going to need involved in negotiations in states where you have a chance to get strong legislation to protect unborn life. These are the very votes you're going to need. What would Kristen Day of that organization, what would she say about this movement and about its goals and about its political possibilities? One other thing, maybe this is just a sentence or a paragraph, I was just wondering if any church historians had anything to say about using the word abolitionist with its heritage in, in the anti-slavery movement. Using the word abolitionist in this context, how accurate is that use of the word? And is this an appropriate use? What do these people mean historically when they use that term? Does that help you with that question? So talk a little bit more about the narrative, because if the New York Times writes about it, it's going to get written by, by oh, yeah. everyone else. I've been kind of monitoring the news from National Public Radio since the overturn of Roe v. Wade. I would say they talk about the overturn of Roe v. Wade between their news and their news-like programs every single day and put a strong, strong emphasis on it. They're talking to people, Terry, who believe that the abolitionist movement represents the entire pro-life movement when they talk well, about legislation in the, in the states. And that narrative is being built right now, and it's really hard to dismantle it. Okay, well, I haven't received any URLs to those reports. And if listeners have seen written or audio file versions of those reports, I would really like to see them, and I will now hunt for them. I haven't run into that yet, but if that's the case, then that's an interesting clash, isn't it? If you had National Public Radio versus the New York Times in terms of how they're framing this, I will look for that. And I'm not at all surprised at what you're saying. In fact, that's kind of what I predicted when you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, a week or two ago. I think that's highly irresponsible. And once again, I think it follows the patterns of what we saw in some wire services and some broadcast organizations in the wake of January 6th, to where people who are waving a Christian flag as they storm the Capitol are automatically assumed to speak for mainstream evangelicalism and conservative Christianity in general when so far in court evidence, we haven't seen that they actually have any clout with the institutions that define evangelicalism and conservative Christianity. And once again, that will be religious denominations 
seminaries, major colleges and universities, parachurch groups like Young Life, Campus Crusade for Christ, independent mission organizations, and publishing houses would also be important. Have any of these people written books that are getting published by major evangelical publishers and getting seriously reviewed even on the most in the most conservative publications? I, I think at this point it's safe to say that World Magazine would oppose this definition of abolitionism. And if World is hearing from people arguing about this, I look forward to a World Magazine news report on this topic because I think that would be important. And just to stress again, the most important news hooks in this story are to what degree is this influencing institutions in the Southern Baptist Convention? I would then ask, oh, the Assemblies of God, the largest charismatic denomination. I would check with the Missouri Synod Lutheran Church. I would check with the Presbyterian Church in America. I would look at other culturally and morally conservative religious groups and ask what kinds of pressures they're feeling inside their congregations about this movement. If you don't find anything, once again, I suspect this is a fringe movement rooted primarily in social media and independent churches and congregations. And the New York Times kind of says that and kind of shows that, but never really fleshes out the implications of that. Talk a little bit about, not the author per se, but the fact that the New York Times says the author Elizabeth Dias covers faith and politics. I don't yeah. know if that makes her a full-blown religion beat reporter well, or yeah. what. Well, she covered religion for Time magazine, and she has some background in this field, and I, she obviously is a professional religion beat writer. I think when you say that she covers religion and politics, the New York Times would consider that a compliment. I mean, what other form of religion would matter as much as religion and politics? If your worldview is that politics is the real world. The structures of power that influence the real world are political. What higher compliment could you pay to a religion beat reporter than to say they cover religion and politics? To be sarcastic, she covers one subject that's kind of imaginary and emotional religion, and she covers another that's real and significant and in the material world, has clout. So what other form of religion would matter but religion and politics? So I think we can assume here that having that as a job title at the New York Times is a compliment. So what about the article itself? It tells you, as you said a moment ago, that she is a professional religion beat reporter. What were the telltale signs you said, okay, this woman knows her subject? Well, because the Southern Baptist Convention material is in there. In other words, probably while covering, I don't remember who went to the Southern Baptist Convention from the New York Times and who covered it from afar, but you now have a religion writer for the New York Times who is based in Dallas. And if you're not hearing about abolitionism in Dallas, it doesn't exist. I mean, that's as important a city 
in Sunbelt and Bible Belt religion as there is, especially in white evangelical Protestantism, I'm sure that the Southern Baptist Convention, as I predicted a couple of weeks ago, put this on their radar. They heard about it in the context of the SBC, and it thus that gets a mention in this story, as it should. What I'm disappointed is that that, sto- that angle isn't the lead of this story. If you're going to take abolition seriously, go with the largest Protestant denomination in America as the lead and say they have some influence there, but they haven't reached any major institutions according to the following voices on both sides of the debate. And what is more typical is people like this Jeff Durbin guy with a colorful past history, a totally independent church, and a loud internet following. This guy represents the main thrust of the abolitionist movement, as best we can tell, and he doesn't have connections to denominations, publishing houses, colleges, seminaries, parachurch ministries, etc. I would have taken a pair of scissors, cut this story up, and taped it into a different order, and then I would have developed the Southern Baptist Convention part more. And I will not be surprised if that's what the New York Times religion professionals do in the future. I hope they do. It's a serious story. With a couple minutes here, more generally, why do the media seem to concentrate on fringe groups and ideas as much as they do? Okay, they're colorful. You can research them with online search engines, and immediately you have these people with colorful backgrounds saying colorful, flashy, outrageous things that make for great quotes. And also, these guys aren't hiding. If you call most Southern Baptist leaders up right now, do you think they're going to be anxious to talk about the abolitionist movement? The answer to that question is no. And they especially may be scared to talk to the New York Times about this movement because they're they're convinced the Times will blow it up out of proportion. I think that's a mistake by Southern Baptists to run from this story. I think they need to address it, much as like they needed to dedicate more attention to people on both sides of the COVID vaccine clashes. This stuff is out there in pews, and hiding from it is not going to do any good. Because like I keep saying, this is a valid story. And if someone is going to help the reporters understand how fringe this organization is, you're going to have to talk to them. And as always, my advice to leaders of mainstream organizations, Southern Baptist, Assemblies of God, whatever, if you're going to do one of these interviews, when you talk to the reporter, say, now I'm going to tape this interview so that I have a record of what I said and the questions that you asked. And that's the conditions under which I'll do this interview. And I'm glad to talk to you under those conditions. And at that point, you have a record of what you said. And if if you have to, you're in a position to even print a transcript for your people to be able to show 
what you said about this movement and kind of defend yourself. You know, if you're worried about that sort of thing, and if mainstream groups won't give the New York Times and other major organizations interviews, how do we expect those newsrooms to quote these people to the level they need to be quoted in stories of this kind? At some point, mainstream people have to talk about these issues. If not, we're going to continue to get coverage that's out of balance. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thanks. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.